0: I have fallen into lakes, however, I did not find any swords in the lake,
1: so I am a terrible lady of the lake. (laughs) But are you a good King Arthur?
0: Uh, That's a great question that maybe we will figure out by the end of this episode. (laughs)
1: Let's find out. Hello, and welcome to TV Saves the World.
0: I'm Priya, and I wish that I were high.
1: Hello, I'm Elam, and I have a can of Truly, which is a knockoff white claw, and it's, it's fine. Today we're talking about the Arthur mythos. I think we should start with, we have said previously on a podcast that nobody listening to this have had their entire family fall into a lake, and... <laughs> One of our listeners has informed us that, in fact, his entire family fell into the lake and then drowned multiple times because his family is a bunch of vampires. I don't think he said drowned. I think he said his whole family has fallen into
0: several lakes
1: i suppose yeah, that's so we fair we like have to apologize for getting this massive social issue wrong <laughs> we are, we understand now that lakes are real danger uh, we were we were wrong to say that it was unrelatable that the protagonist's father fell into a lake permanently <laughs> for no reason and instead of going to therapy she became a superhero you know I, I i apologize to our listeners
0: so now that that's out of the way uh yeah what are we talking about today elam
1: well speaking of lakes did you know that in addition to falling into lakes, you can find swords in lakes? Yeah,
0: sometimes you can also come out of lakes.
1: Oh, yeah. I have, I've never fallen into a lake or found a sword in a lake or became a king. So this is inspired because I was
0: watching Curse, the new Netflix Arthur TV show. And we're going to get to that a little bit more later. But I also wanted to talk about it in the sense of like, it, like, I've been really into the Arthur mythos, like, my whole life. Like, I read T.H. White's The Once and Future King, like, when I was a kid. And then I read, like, all of the other Arthur books, basically, that I could get my hands on, uh, which is, like, the Darkest Rising series, uh, Mary Stewart's Crystal Cave series, a whole shit ton of YA about, like, Merlin and Guinevere and, like, various other um, characters in the Arthur uh, universe. And I, I guess I've always, I've always kind of wondered, like, what is it that's so compelling about this? Like, why does everybody, like, A, why is this a myth that, like, everybody knows? Mm-hmm. Um, And B, uh, like, why is it, like, it has zero historical basis, it turns out. So why is it uh, so compelling to us as a story? And I think it's important, actually, to talk about all these things for Kurtz, because I don't think we can really contextualize Curse correctly um, unless we can talk about like kind of the role that it plays in the various many different kinds of Arthur adaptations and fan fictions that have happened over the years so I thought it would be interesting to kind of try and do like a, a different kind of episode where we delve into like this whole universe uh, instead of just this one tv show and we're back
1: yay yay how was your booze, you uh it's pretty good my office had um a happy hour back when we had an office and we have a lot of truly seltzer left over and since nobody in the office actually drinks um it's still here nice like you know seven months later And sometimes I drink it during these conversations. Just it just needs to be drunk. That's what it's there for. I mean, there's you know, there's only so much drinking you can really. That's not true. You can do a lot of drinking in a pandemic, but there's only so much you can do (laughs) without being alcoholic or feeling like you're being alcoholic. So. (laughs) Well, I wish I could be a stoner
0: all through this pandemic, but unfortunately, Wisconsin is not a weed legal state.
1: Even though it is adjacent to a weed legal say it. What you're saying is even if you were high right now, it would be bad for you to say it on a recorded podcast.
0: Yes, that's correct. Also, I'm not high right now, and I really wish that I were, and it is not illegal to say that.
1: <laughs> Have you considered meditating? I hear that helps. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fucking with you. It's useless. I I, hate it. I don't understand okay. meditating. I thought I was doing it right, but it turned out that I was just taking a nap. Anyway. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
0: So, history of the Arthur myth. So uh when we were talking about this the first time, Elam, oh yeah, we should say like we were gonna record this episode like two or three times, and then like stuff just kept getting in the way. like we kept having to we kept having to like delay it, like my laptop crashed last week and I had to get a new one. It was like a whole thing. Ah,
1: it's it's like this episode is going backwards through time. <laughs> so we talked about this more than we usually do. And so in
0: one of those times that we talked about it, I, I was mentioning to you that I feel like Arthurian works have been, ha, have had a lot more fan fiction than basically any other like mythology that I, that I can think of. And you were like, well, Arthur is like completely fan fiction. Yeah. Like everything about it is. And I was like, really? And then I thought on this Wikipedia hole and I learned that you were 100% correct. In fact, you were like 10,000% correct. Holy shit! Like, it turns out the entirety of the history of this myth is that it's just fan fiction upon fan fiction. It is literally fan fiction all the way down.
1: Holy shit! That never happens!
0: <laughs> now it happens! Oh my god! And and one thing that I think is really interesting about this is that, and I want to note this like before we get into the details, I'm going to cite like certain writers and works that like Wikipedia says were really crucial, but it's also really important to know that each of them is notable because they each inspired their own little like constellation of like directly derived fanfic. Each of these like rippled out and then like they all interacted with each other on like a time-lagged basis while... Uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth was writing his thing like these Welsh legends that were the basis of it had already rippled out to Europe and then when people saw Geoffrey of Monmouth thing and like you know and stuff that had been written directly afterwards they were like aha this is an update of this thing that we already know about like through these other channels and then like more stuff got created like, like it's gonna sound linear but in fact it was just like a whole bunch of people just writing it's like a cloud of fan fiction almost it's like particle physics, yeah. where like every time you zoom in on any particle, like it turns out it's made up of a whole bunch of subparticles, and uh-huh. then when you zoom in on those, it turns out to be like not actually a single particle, but like a whole cloud of like virtual particles that are all kind of like flashing in and out of existence, and you know it's really hard to pin down like where each of them are, and they're all kind of in this cloud that makes up this particle.
1: Like that's what researching the Arthur mythos history is like. Ooh. I- uh, I, I, I like this. It's like if uh, if we, like, removed Harry Potter from reality but kept all of the Harry Potter fanfiction. Yes. It's literally exactly that. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like something that somebody would write a PhD thesis about, and I think people have. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's the reason that Wikipedia has so much information
0: on this is because <laughs> multiple people have written a lot of PhD thesis about this. <laughs> So there's probably no need for me to, like, dedicate my whole life to, like, re-researching all of this on Wikipedia. (laughs) But it was fun to do for, like, two weeks. (laughs) So the earliest uh, known references that people can find for Arthur, um, they start with Welsh and Breton, and I'm emphasizing the E, E -E E-R-E-T-O-N, Breton poems um, about a supernatural warrior named Arthur. Mm-hmm. He's already, we're kind of seeing the comic book, like
1: yeah, the superhero.
0: And it seems to have been written down first in the eight in like the eight hundreds A.D. But the legend seemed to have circulated well before that. And in the first writing down, Arthur actually is not a king; he is just a duke, or what they call a dux ballorum, which later evolved into duke. Uh huh. He's super Christian, uh, so he has a shield with the Virgin Mary on it. Yeah, I think I actually
1: remember reading that as a kid. He
0: specifically opposes the Saxons. So there's this whole idea in these in these early Welsh legends that like Britain was founded by a prince of Troy uh, named Brutus, but who is uh-huh. not the Brutus who killed Caesar, just happens to be named Brutus. Okay, okay. In the same way that the Aeneid has like somebody coming from Troy to found Rome. This guy Brutus comes from Troy to found Britain. And he drives out all the giants who are apparently the actual indigenous inhabitants of Britain.
1: Dope, dope, dope. Here we go with the
0: colonialism. He says, okay, I'm going to name this isle Britain after myself. Humble. (laughs) Yeah. Like as you're saying, you can already see like the themes of colonialism and like civilization level handoffs of power developing. But uh, importantly, Arthur is not actually considered a king in at this point in the, like mythos evolution interesting yeah like he he's just a war leader so he's the duke and his main claim to fame is actually that in one of his battles he kills 960 men single-handedly that seems unlikely <laughs> but also
1: uh, underlines like the comic book superhero nest, right <laughs> like who does that <laughs> I think I remember Lancelot like walking on a bridge full of knives at some point, which I like was really fascinated with as a kid for a very long time because like also nobody does that.
0: And then also in this very earliest part of the myth, he is said to have killed his own son who's named Mordred. And so that's what we have. We have this guy who's super Christian, he beats the Saxons. Well, and he beats them temporarily, then later they win. He's a really strong, like, fierce warrior. He kills his own son. Now, note at this point what is not in the myth, so Merlin is not there, um, Camelot is not there, the Round Table is not there, Guinevere and Lancelot and all of his like nice errands are not there, his father Uther Pendragon, and that whole part of the myth is not there, and the idea that Mordred is his incestuous son, specifically, is not there. Uh, in fact, at this point, he doesn't even have a sister. Like He's literally just a guy who shows up, slaughters a bunch of people, kills his son, and then leaves.
1: Dude... I gotta say, that that sounds like an HBO TV show. <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, wait, wait, I have an idea. What if we had a protagonist and he was a dick? What? Could I get a few million dollars per episode? H- as long as there are tits involved, the HBO CEO of tits will absolutely approve that. No, no actual dicks will be shown on screen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so then uh, the
0: next part of this uh, comes in the 1100s when Geoffrey of Monmouth gets involved, and apparently this is the thing that he's famous for is literally writing fanfiction of these early Welsh myths, Welsh myths, and then and then super expanding the whole Arthur mythos. So he he adds Uther, and the whole thing with like a grain and stuff like that. He adds Guinevere, although, again, she's not actually a character. It's just, like, there's Arthur's wife. Arthur now has a court called Camelot, but it doesn't have any round table or knights. It's just, like, kind of cool. Geoffrey Monmouth also adds Avalon, and specifically this idea that, like, after Arthur kills Mordred, he is mortally wounded, and then he's carried off to the Isle of Avalon, and then never dies. And this is where, like, the basis of the once and future king comes from.
1: Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then Mordred in this
0: point, there's also no incest yet. Mordred is just a nephew. Really, the big contribution that he made was Merlin. So this is the point where Merlin gets added. And interestingly, in this very first iteration of Merlin, he is said to be a magician, but what that means in practice is that he's an omens and prophecy guy.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Like like what you would actually expect him to be as a magician and not like...
0: Yeah. Like the very early medieval, like antiquity to early medieval understanding of what a magician is, which is basically like a soothsayer, like a guy who, you know, when there's a weird cloud in the sky, you can call him and be like, this weird shaped cloud in the sky, what does it pretend for my like reign or for my next battle or whatever? And then he has to like come up with some bullshit to tell you like on the spot. Uh,
1: it'll probably be fine, but you know, sacrifice me some geese.
0: So interestingly, Geoffrey uh, of Monmouth wrote an entire book called The Prophecies of Merlin. I gave access to a translation in a manner that I will not say on this podcast censored it's really interesting because it actually it really to my eyes just reads as complete gibberish it's actually very similar to if you've ever read the book of revelations in the bible that's also complete gibberish and it really reads like people were on a drug trip and that's (laughs) the more the (laughs) house
1: can you can you give some examples i want i want to share in the medieval drug trip so here's how it starts so the, the opening paragraph
0: is, Wartigern, king of the Britons, is sitting upon the bank of a drained pond. Two dragons are fighting each other. And so then he calls Merlin over and he's like, what does this mean? And Merlin says, Woe to the red dragon for his banishment hasten on. His lurking hole shall be seized by the white dragon, which signifies the Saxons, but the red denotes the British nation, which shall be oppressed by the white. For a boar of Cornwall, shall give his assistance and trample their necks under his feet. The house of Romulus shall dread his courage, and his end shall be doubtful. Six of his posterity shall sway the scepter, but after them shall arise a German worm. He shall be advanced by a sea wolf, whom the woods of Africa shall accompany. Therefore shall the revenge of the thunderer show itself, for every field shall disappoint the husbandmen. Mortality shall snatch away the people and make a desolation over all countries. A blessed king shall prepare a fleet and be reckoned the twelfth in the court among the saints
1: uh i'm i'm getting the impression that somebody had a much better time during quarantine than I am. <laughs> and the thing is that this just goes on and on and on <laughs> like, oh my god
0: like i read you like a very small portion of like what is a real what is an actual book and it's literally just a book of myths
1: <laughs> okay so like some zodiac i gotta they're gonna fuck right and then um um and then some animals are gonna do weird magic shit yeah and then the sun's gonna show up i think i got it <laughs> oh uh here's a good
0: one uh the uh, the ravenousness of kites shall be destroyed and the teeth of wolves blunted the lion's wealth shall be transformed into sea fishes and an eagle shall build her nest upon mont arabia and then oh the island shall be wet with night tears Woe to thee, Neustria, because the lion's brain shall be poured upon thee, and he shall be banished with shattered limbs from his native soil. And then it just goes on and on and on. Oh my god. (laughs) And so, according to Wikipedia, um, a lot of this animal symbolism, like, made a lot more sense to a contemporary medieval audience, because, like, everybody had animals on their flags, basically. And so a lot of it was, like... You know commentary on you know contemporary political stuff right like how the inferno is all like commentary on dante's political enemies like that kind of thing
1: right like if you were like there is an orange poison in a pale house we would all be like yeah you really hate trump <laughs> but like two thousand years later you'd be like man you're really into color theory these days
0: honestly elam i now really want to read your prophecies written in the style of the prophecies of the <laughs> 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 about contemporary politics i think the time is right for that <laughs> but what i think is actually more interesting about this iteration of merlin is that he's clearly very neurodivergent hmm. so before he uh says these prophecies um it's literally just like a throwaway line it's like you know, Vortigern calls him over, says, "Tell me what this dragon fight means." And Merlin then bursts into tears, and then does says all these prophecies. And I think that's really interesting because I have never once seen an Arthur adaptation where I can imagine Merlin bursting into tears.
1: I mean, I can see like the Arthur Merlin bursting into tears, like the one from the um, the BBC show. And then you know, Arthur has to um, help him.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I can definitely that but like i can't see an arthur adaptation where merlin is considered magic in a way that like makes us bursting into tears like a thing that you just kind of like sit through while you get through the act while you get to the actual prophecies does that make sense yeah Anyway, this has been a lot of history so let's take a break and talk about D V C merlin and other recent arthur adaptations
1: Merlin is great because it's essentially someone's um, wacky fanfic. What are these characters? But it was snarky and funny and with a lot of homosexual you know, pretext that does not become context, and I'm very sad about that. It's not quite Slash. It's clearly there to be slashed, but it's not Slash. And to be clear, this is the BBC version of Merlin, which is not the NBC version
0: of Merlin, which was in the late 90s.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is the BBC version of Merlin, where the plot is that Arthur and Merlin are teenage bros at a castle and they're the best bros and occasionally some girls show up and they have like complicated you know girl trouble and merlin also has a dragon trouble and arthur has i don't know being a blonde bro trouble but fundamentally it's this sort of wacky you know teenage fanfic of like what if it's like camelot is a high school exactly what if what if these uh one of these guys, but like, you know, it's like one of Hogwarts, but Arthurian and, you know, without without transphobia, I guess, and, and funnier and with no classes, but like with dragons and the episodes are like, you know, there is like a wacky knight that visits them or something. It's great fun and it's super, you know, slashable. I mean, the reason why I like it is because I saw it when I was, you know, young and I was <laughs> like... Young. <laughs> younger. That'll younger, please. younger. And like... Yeah, hey. I mean it's very it's very watchable in the way that WB shows are kind of watchable. It's entertaining, um, all the leads are pretty. Chemistry is good between the actors. It's snarky. And it's snarky, yeah. It's funny. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't take itself seriously. But it hits a lot of the sort of notes that you know that, you know, it's gonna hit you know where it's going. You know, Arthur is gonna be king one day. Merlin is gonna be a powerful wizard one day. When this Guinevere girl shows up, you assume that she's important because her name is Guinevere. I think it's you know a lot sort of things that people like about sort of like Spider-Man, where you're like, oh yes, Peter Parker, I know who he is. And maybe there's a bit of subversion here, but fundamentally, it's you know medieval uh, medieval Spider-Man, but actually funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, the other myth is super adaptable to our like very superhero-laden time.
1: That's true, actually. Arthur is kind of a, kind of a superhero story, right? He's like a really good knight, and he goes in and he solves some problems. And much like every superhero has, like, some wacky weakness and, like, arch nemesis, he has, like, this wacky weakness and arch nemesis that, like, kind of changes in in every adaptation. But, like, I think part of the reason why it's so compelling and
0: fanficable is because every single character has built into it some character who opposes them, like, in any of their various dynamics. So, like, um, you know, Arthur, in terms of political power, has Mordred, who opposes him, um, who's, uh, you know, his son. I, but then in terms of romantic power has Lancelot who opposes them, but it's his friend like in this other way, like it's just very rich dynamically and honestly, kind of in a way that is reminiscent of soap opera slash comic book. Yeah. And Merlin is opposed by Nimue, which is something that uh, we're going to talk about later too with Kurt.
1: But until we get a gay King Arthur, what other sort of notable uh, interpretations have we had that have been very famous? Obviously, the big
0: ones from this century are uh, The Once in Future King. Um, actually, I want to point out that Monty Python and the Holy Grail is technically a King Arthur fanfic. Uh, there was a Disney movie, The Sword of the Stone. There was a Disney knockoff movie, i.e. not Disney, but like trying to be Disney, Quest for Camelot. Mm-hmm. There was a star series called Camelot. Uh, there were two movies in the early 2000s, one that starred Keira Knightley and one that starred Heath Ledger, and they were both terrible
1: oh yeah i remember that
0: <laughs> but and then the two that i wanted to talk about a little bit more here are susan cooper's the darkest rising series and then also uh the mist of avalon by Marion zimmer bradley and uh we have to say up front Marian zimmer bradley turned out to be like running a child molesting ring
1: I mean, I you know, it's okay. The guy who ran our local bookstore apparently tried to rape his daughter. So don't, don't read sci-fi, kids. That being said, and That is a big thing to be said. The Mists of Avalon miniseries was very pretty. I remember that there were a lot of mists and there was some Avalon and there were a lot of women. Yeah, so the Myth of Avalon is particularly important to mention in
0: terms of Arthur mythos. It really created this idea of like, oh, we can like readapt this myth to be about... Uh, decolonizing and like about pushing society in a more feminist direction um, as opposed to the previous interpretations of it, which had all been about like pushing society in a more patriarchal Christian, like colonialist direction. Really what all of the modern interpretations that I just mentioned before, like pretty much all of the like stuff that has followed has been kind of following the myths of Avalon template of like, okay, we now understand this as like a sort of clash of civilizations and a clash of like philosophies and like social philosophies as opposed to just like a straight up religious or like ethnic uh, clash it's probably like the most important arthur adaptation like out of all of the anything that's been written this century i think in terms of like how much it's influenced like later work
1: yeah i think i think i would agree with you actually i think it's uh sort of considered to be a classic feminist text in many ways though less now, obviously, and guys, why? Why? Okay, anyway, I was gonna add if we're gonna talk about books, I want to point out that uh, my favorite one of my favorite books in the world that I grew up with is uh, The Great Book of Amber by Roger Zelazny, which also is occasionally makes allusions to Arthurian mythos. Oh, yeah, though most days a joke.
0: That's not surprising because, in a lot of ways, Amber is like
1: Camelot. Exactly, and there's, like, occasional bits where it is implied that, like, various uh, characters have gone to their sort of separate alternate worlds to play King Arthur periodically, though it is not it is not meant to reflect well on them. And the protagonist of the second series is actually a wizard named Merlin.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I totally forgot. Technically, you can think of Amber as Arthur fanfic. God, yeah. I completely forgot all the Merlin books. Because they weren't as good as the previous books.
1: I like the Merlin books. They are about a computer programmer who invents the Google for the multiverse and has daddy issues. <laughs> Fair enough. I also have an overbearing family that has complicated issues with other, other cultures and relationships. And, you know, I can I can respect that. And then
0: uh, I also want to mention the Susan Cooper's Darkest Rising series which I really liked as a kid. And then I reread as an adult and I was like, holy shit, this is like proto-fascism. Ouch. Like, it's really incredible to me how much it hits like these themes of like, everyone must be super obedient to their masters and if they're not, they must be like brutally punished. And it is really important to uphold like the standard order of things like blah, 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 blah. I don't know. It's just interesting to me like that these come from the same source material this is part of what makes Arthur so interesting is that it is possible for two people to like have such wildly divergent takes. And I mean, you know, obviously this is true of all fan fiction that the whole point is to like take these unestablished, you know, characters and framework and put your own take on it. But it's kind of surprising to me that it, that you have this one framework that's been known for so long that still supports all these wildly, wildly different like ideas of,
1: well i think it kind of has to grapple with them because the other i think very influential book about arthur from the 20th century is the once and future king which was written in 1938 and was sort of an you know in many ways um an anti-war book there's a chapter where he like meets some fascist ants i think and like learns how fascism is bad like it's 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 also meant to be against fascism in all of those ways it's you know i think we think of it as less influential because it is been so influential that it has influenced everything else. Maybe I should
0: reread The Once and Future King. I, I remember reading it as a kid and thinking actually that it was like super character based. Like it's very very detailed in terms of like here's all of the characters but I, I don't remember getting any like wider message out of it but also I think I was like 10 when I read it.
1: I, I also haven't read it for a while so I've had to like you know compare, read some notes on it. But I guess the thing is right like it is, it is a story that sort of grapples with those themes. Because on one hand Arthur is great and he's in charge, and on the other hand, the point of the Round Table is that all of the knights are equal. When I was growing up reading Arthur and reading Arthurian legends in Russia, that was a lot of the legends sort of made a big deal out of the fact that the, the table is round. That, you know, he's he's a fair king, and that you know it is his union of knights is innovative because it is a union of equals. They, they're all equal together. And today that sounds really stupid to me because it's kind of like a startup where like we're all- <laughs> that guy's the CEO we're all going to get together at a round table and decide what we're doing. But at the end of the day, Bob's the CEO and you're not. So like, guys.
0: I think that kind of speaks to how all of the history of this myth has kind of worked it into this form that is surprisingly universal in a way that like you wouldn't expect for like something that comes so that is so identified essentially with medieval Europe um, but it kind of speaks to this idea of that everyone wants, which is like for everybody to have an equal say within the bounds of some reasonable moral framework that like stops bad actors from like turning their equal say into like power over everybody else.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think I think you know I have I have some things to say about it being a western about it being you know sort of this western setting and what that means in terms of universality. But um I can I can save those for later. i can I can be a sportsport at the end of this podcast.
0: Yeah, I think we I think we're definitely going to get into that with the cursed part. Oh, so there's just one more thing I wanted to add to this part. While I was writing this up and after I'd like researched all the history and stuff, I realized that actually there's a really interesting kind of like meta pattern across all of these myths. The biggest blank in, in like the whole Arthur myth is Guinevere. Like in all of the stuff that I've read, I think her character is the one that diverges the most wildly. And similarly, her character, you can get a sense of what the entire like, feel of like, the, any particular adaptation is going to be based on her character alone. For example, in the BBC Merlin, Guinevere is uh, A, a black woman, and B is a ladies' maid to Morgan Le Fay. From that, you kind of get that whole sense of like, this is like a teen drama like, nobody else is advancing this delusion that Arthur's going to marry, like, a lady's maid. Like, that's straight out of, like, soap operas.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Wait, isn't he, is is he actually a knight? Yeah, I mean, he's he's Uther's son, so he's, like, the prince. Well, Merlin is a wacky sorcerer's apprentice, right? Like, I mean, whatever, it's a teenage drama, right? Like, he's the star quarterback, and she's not quite the star cheerleader, but clearly the girl, you know, that, that he's meant to end up with the cool guy doesn't marry the star
0: cheerleader anymore exactly yeah he marries the kind of like quieter nerdy girl but who's still like assertive and like but but just like who's not like the super cool girl at the time and then in midst of Avalon Guinevere is like the whitest of white girls uh like she's super blonde she's like scared of everything she's like really conservative and she's fairly anti-feminist and she's portrayed as bad. And that in itself kind of gives you this idea of like, okay, Miss of Avalon is actually this story about feminism and how men are willing to like, do things that go against the general self-interest just because they want to like, get in this woman's pants basically.
1: Yeah, I really remember Miss of Avalon feeling very sort of like 1970s feminism.
0: I didn't actually realize this. I thought it came out in the early 90s, but it actually came out in 1982. So it's like oh, directly well. a product of 70s. Of
1: I, I, I did not know that. I actually just, just guessed a decade. I feel so good about myself.
0: Or, or like in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, there is no Guinevere because like, it's not really trying to be like an Arthurian tale, right? Like it's just like trying to be general, like humor and satire.
1: It's It's a bunch of sketches about knights.
0: So yeah, like next time you're reading or watching an Arthur fanfic or adaptation, notice what they do with Guinevere, because she's a least canonically defined character. So what they do with her is really indicative of like the general worldview that they are trying to give to you.
1: I like that a lot. Guinevere is the North Star of Arthurian Mythos. So oh, Priya, yeah. you did a lot of research here. And I, like, half-assed some research the first time we talked about this, and then you came back a week later and just lectured me for, like, two hours.
0: <laughs> I know. I really, I really fell down the Wikipedia hole on this one.
1: <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. At least you fell out the Wikipedia hole on something useful. <laughs> Quote-unquote useful.
0: <laughs> well, let's make full use of this and get back to the history Monmouth added everything kind of pre Camelot, basically, that we now think of as canon in the myth, but none of the like post Camelot stuff. Um, and the round table was added uh, kind of right after he wrote this. And it seems to have been inspired by Charlemagne. So, so we get now the whole beginning, we have like none of the middle, and then we have the end. So the middle actually came later. So there were three great medieval uh, story cycles, the matters of Britain, France and Rome. And the matter of Rome was apparently just retellings of classical Roman and Greek mythology. The matter of France was uh, this whole story cycle about Charlemagne and specifically Roland, the French knight. And then the matter of Britain was literally the Arthur mythos. And so at this point, like literally everybody in the medieval world who's writing knightly romances starts to write fan fiction about like the Arthur myth.
1: I mean, it's the same reason you write fan fiction. One of the reasons you like you write fan fiction now, like there's a steady audience and you like the characters and it makes sense.
0: So this is where Lancelot gets added um, along with his affair with Guinevere. And it turns out that this is probably because that writer was writing for a court full of women and this was like the, his thing to like flesh out Guinevere. Ah, and then this same guy invented the Holy Grail. He invented the Fisher King also, who is like his own mythical figure now. And then he said the Fisher King had a father who was fasting. And this would have been understandable to a contemporary audience um, because of several saints who lived without food besides communion. Uh, what happens is uh, Lancelot, when he's on this quest, he goes to this palace and he sees someone bring out a big a grail. And In the story, it's specifically a grail. It's just like a shallow bowl, basically. And it just has a communion wafer in it. And so it seems like the important thing, actually, is that this communion wafer then is doing the work of, like, an entire meal that would otherwise be in this bowl this is the story then that adds Elaine, who is like Lancelot's lover in a bunch of different adaptations, and then Galahad as Lancelot's son, who is one of the several different knights who is considered like pure enough to have the Holy Grail. And then this directly inspired some fanfiction that actually turned it into the Holy Grail, um, including a whole romance about Joseph of Arimathea, which is where the entire Grail story comes from. So like, you know, the Last Supper catching Jesus' blood. So the Holy Grail was actually invented for the Arthur mythos and then added, then retconned into the Christian mythos, basically. <laughs> Which I think is, is really, really interesting because, like, the Holy Grail itself has, like, inspired so much, like, Bible fanfiction, like the
1: fucking Da Vinci Code, right? It seems like something you'd make up in, like, you know, your wacky superhero show. It's a magic cup. Why is it magic? I, God, whatever, guys. Who cares, okay? <laughs>
0: Uh, But also specifically, like, it's kind of putting a Christian backing on because, like, you know, Christians were very suspicious of, like, paganism, you know, quote, unquote, and, like, you know, quote, unquote, heathens and, like, other religions and, like, the magic that goes along with it. And so this is, like, taking some of that magic and saying, like, no, it's acceptable in a Christian context because it comes from, you know, it comes from Jesus and it has, like, this, you know, so it's okay. It's our magic. This is also the point where Nimue gets added. So initially she's a water fairy and then she's a lady of the lake. So like there's this whole basically uh, tribe of people who are like of the lake and like they have a lady and like she is one of them. So she's not a magical being. She's just a person who who has the title lady of the lake. And then she's very quickly adapted into Merlin's lover slash protege slash nemesis. Specifically, she's Merlin's protege. So she's young and Merlin is older and he's like her teacher. She wants to learn magic. And then he keeps trying to fuck her and she does not want to have sex with him. And so that's why she ends up killing him. Oh, man. <laughs> and at this point, it's worth noting that a lot of these medieval romance writers were also women. You know, they were also kind of writing what they know and they were like, uh, Merlin was like a creepy old dude and like Nimue just really didn't want to deal with that shit.
1: I mean, I think I see we back to the entire Arthur was a dick situation.
0: yeah. <laughs> And then another thing I thought was interesting was in some places, there's apparently a very clear connection between Nimue and Diana, the ancient Roman goddess, which makes sense because one of the big medieval story cycles was retelling all these Roman and Greek myths. Uh So like, there may have always been sort of an explicit, you know, again, quote, unquote, pagan uh, influence to Nimue. Okay, okay. So as these medieval romances keep happening, the myth becomes what we would now think of as like an episodic TV show. There's a static background where there's this Camelot, you know, it has this great king called Arthur. And so you can kind of rely on it to be static, because like Arthur is keeping the piece, right? Because like, that's the whole point of Camelot is to be a place where the is kept. So then every new romance is just a new episode set in that universe. And so this is where all of your side characters can get fleshed out. So like you have Tristan and Isolde, like, you know, inspired their own whole cycle, Gawain, Percival, Galahad, Pelinor, Bedivere, Karadok. Like i Again, just listing the ones that I've heard of, but there's like hundreds of these people. Right. Finally, the kind of the last big medieval romance uh, story about Arthur, the Vulgate cycle, um, adds the very last missing bit, which is the part where Mordred is Arthur's incestuous
1: son. Yeah, that bit always seemed uh, gritty. Yeah, <laughs> it was like the gritty reboot of this, and then.
0: It was after all of this that what is now arguably the most famous Arthur tale of antiquity, Lamort's d'Arthur, was written by Thomas Mallory, which I, when I first went into this, I initially thought was like the beginning of the Arthur cycle. Turns out it was actually like the end of like the last big like time of like Arthur stories. And what I think is really interesting about this whole thing, actually, is that to me, this is an explanation for how Arthur becomes such a compelling like framework is that it's undergone basically really strenuous evolution by natural selection, but for a narrative. So like like a narrative starts, people are like, oh, that sounds interesting. You know, it gets popular. So that's like promoting, like it has fitness. Yeah. And then it, it quote unquote reproduces, which is that people write new versions of it and put those out into the world. And then those variations that are the most fit, i.e. the most popular, get the most variations of their own. It's undergone this process that maps like almost one-to-one on... Like biological evolution, but as a story. So it's optimized for essentially human narrative faith. Okay, that makes sense. Like, that's kind of how you zero in on all of these things. Like, oh, this dynamic with Nimue seems to be like a big thing. You know, this whole idea of like his wife has an adulterous affair with one of his, one of the knights. Like, that seems to be, you know, an interesting thing. Like, that's how you get into all these parts of the story that make it like fanfic bait, you know, to today. And then I think that's also why you get the round table and this idea of like everyone is equal, like within the bounds of this like moral framework. And that's why it it that's how it gets worked into something that like continues to have resonance because like so many different people wrote variations on it and then the popular one stuck. And like you go through enough versions of that and you get something that actually sticks for like a wide variety of people.
1: And of course, with a thousand years, you get so many different versions of the story that you're going to find something that resonates with you.
0: Exactly. And then you ripple that out and it resonates with a whole bunch of people. And then it's not surprising that it continues to resonate with people. Like, people don't change that much. Yeah, I can see that. And then I had one more note on this, since we're we're going to be talking about Cursed, which is that the uh, more dark Actually made Nimue like kind of awesome in a way that I didn't know you could do with Arthur stories, which is maybe like in retrospect, angrier about her, which is that she's a protege of Merlin. She resists his advances and then eventually gets sick of it and like welds him up in like a tree or a stone or something. Nice. And then here's the great thing. She takes his place at court with no problems. Dude. (laughs) Yeah, like everyone's just like, oh, instead of Merlin, now we have you, Nimue, as our like resident magician advisor. That sounds good.
1: (laughs) So, man, that really sounds like a TV show in the Me Too era that like wanted to give a shout out. Why did you replace Kevin Spacey with his wife? No reason. You know. Just like she got sick of him and sealed him in a tree, so... uh... He was, he's in a tree. But he, he's in a tree. (laughs) He's the actor, so sure. And, like, then she doesn't,
0: like, meet a terrible end at all. Like, she marries one of the knights. I think it's really interesting that he doesn't, like, punish her for any of this, basically.
1: Because, I mean, like, even even at the time, right, I think people were like, well, obviously sometimes it's totally justifiable to seal the guy in a tree. Yeah,
0: exactly. I think also it's a reminder that we don't have to let these things be dictated by our time. Like if we want to write a thing where it's totally justified to like steal the guy in a tree and we can just be fair to that, continue to be fair in that that character afterwards, we can just do that. Like there's no reason why we can't. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought it was really interesting, like the extent to which this is just like fan fiction upon fan fiction and kind of for what that says about the human tendency to write fan fiction, which it turns out is extremely ingrained in us. We're good at it. <laughs> All right, so we will be back with Chris.
1: Now that we've gone through that whole thing, Elam.
0: <laughs> oh man!
1: We can get to an actual TV show. That's right. There's a the TV show that you liked, and I thought it was fine. Let's talk about Cursed. Priya, yeah, tell me, tell me about Cursed.
0: I started watching Cursed now a few weeks ago, and it's apparently by Frank Miller, who is known to like be a famous comics writer who's also pretty
1: terrible at social justice issues. Uh, But the producer of the first two uh, episodes is actually um, a black woman.
0: Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. That actually makes sense. Yeah. I just started watching it because I was like, why not? And I think it's important to note that Netflix now seems to have a whole bunch of like, white women like fighting for social justice things like they have warrior nun for example oh
1: yeah i almost watched that instead but i promised you that i would watch cursed so oh man i tried watching it and i did not like it at all okay that's that's good because i didn't i didn't do it
0: (laughs) but anyway i just i started watching cursed because i was like oh why not and i had read some stuff on twitter that it was like hot garbage and i was like all right well let's see what kind of hot garbage this is and i definitely immediately noticed that it was trying to be like you know game of thrones version of arthur basically okay okay uh, but i also kind of felt like i was like ah oh, i know i shouldn't watch this and then i just kept watching it like i couldn't stop and i think it's because it had like real characters Ooh. i was so surprised to find a show that that at least felt to me like the characters were actual people who were trying to make actual like decisions in their context rather than like pawns in a message piece
1: Good. That sounds like a definition of a good show.
0: One more thing that I really liked about it. You know how my my perennial complaint about cop shows and the depiction of like police brutality in media is that they don't depict it in the way that we see it, like all the time. Like Mm. no one is willing to just be like, yeah. And then there was this cop, and he was like a fucking asshole, and he just like shot and killed this guy because he like got off on the idea that he has the power to
1: do that. Like, that's literally what we see on Twitter every day. And nobody in media, like, wants to show that kind of a cop. It's it's not nuanced enough, even though it's the reality is not nuanced enough.
0: Right, exactly. Like, sometimes reality is not nuanced, and, like, you have to, like, deal with that. And you can deal with that in a very nuanced way, but you have to acknowledge that. Like, you have to have the starting point. And the thing I liked about Cursed Right Out of the Gate is that it is willing to show how bad Christianity could be. In terms of, like, colonizing and just being completely brutal and, you know, genocidal to Native populations in a way that I've never seen any other, like, piece of media grapple with. They have some things about, like, oh, you know, some of these people, like, have to be, you know, there's these lesbians and they have to hide it. But, like, their abbess kind of knows and she's, like, okay with it. Right. And then immediately their abbess is, like, carted away by, like, these red paladins or are basically inquisitors. Great. I really like the way that it showed that, like, no, look, there are some people who are just actually, like, genocidal evil assholes who are into this idea because it allows them the cover that they want to, like, go and, like, kill everybody else and it really shows it to an extent i mean honestly like some of the accounts from the crusades are like even worse than this
1: no i mean like history is fucking brutal yeah, and terrible but like i was still pretty pleasantly surprised by how it like doesn't it, it doesn't feel like like it feels like it's trying to
0: show it's actually trying to grapple with that history just without being like excessive in what it shows. I can appreciate that. And at the same time, I also kind of know that like the only reason that they can get away with this is because now like white guys who like work at Netflix are, even if they're not super great on other social justice issues, they're generally pretty anti-religion.
1: That's true. Though I mean, I would also add away with this. Another reason why they do it is because all of the characters in the show are white. Well, that's not true except for Arthur, but the characters being colonized are, are Irish, and this is the thing that television does all the time, where we pretend that we're going to talk about colonization or immigration or whatever, but none of the people involved are going to look the way that the colonized people have looked for most of history, or the way that immigrants that are actually prosecuted for their immigration status look like today.
0: Yeah, it's like this fantasy that we can talk about colonialization without talking about racism.
1: Or, you know, we can just, we make everyone Irish and we say, well, it's relatable, right? I'm thinking of uh, Carnival Row, which is a very forgettable show. I had to literally Google Amazon Fey Legolas Irish. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it has Orlando Bloom in it, right? <laughs> Look, it worked. It worked. <laughs> but that's sort of the problem with a lot of um, Arthur mythos is that they all kind of by necessity have to lean into the sort of like Celtic tradition and the sort of European tradition. And the truth is, like, we've heard so much about it. I mean, you know, it's like it's like the, the Seinfeld thing where you're like, well, Seinfeld isn't funny anymore because we watched so many parodies of Seinfeld. But like, Arthur is like <laughs> the Seinfeld of of <laughs> myths. I have watched so much Arthur myths by now. Like I'm just I'm just kind of done. I'm like, oh yeah, great. It's another Arthur thing. And I get it. I mean, I get that it's a retelling. I mean, you know, it's just I appreciate that curse is a sort of retelling that, you know, focuses um one new way it focuses on a lot of the sort of under underrepresented characters it focuses on the sort of struggle against um um racism you know the wild anti-fay anti-irish racism that is very applicable to our modern times that was sarcasm <laughs> i get it man like they're all in like flowering you know misty fucking fields of whales that may or may not be filmed in new zealand like yeah and i would point out that it also kind of goes out of its
0: way to be colonialist without being racist in the sense that like
1: like they're careful to show people
0: of color in every single population even though of course white people are generally the protagonist except for arthur which i thought was at first i was like oh great a black arthur and then i realized
1: oh this arthur is also a dick that's why they cast him as a black guy but actually he's cute he the actor seems really talented though like it's a very it's very watchable really good actor I think he's like he's super cute I think he's really good like
0: the character who they reveal to be Guinevere later like I didn't realize she was supposed to be Guinevere until I saw like Arthur look at her and was like kind of like different look and I was like wait maybe that's gonna end up being Guinevere and it turned out that like everyone else had figured this out like earlier like I think they said her name earlier and I just like missed it <laughs> but, like yeah they they like managed to cast a really good guy <laughs> um but yeah and and also like he's not unredeemably a dick but like that was the other thing that i liked like they they aren't trying to go like super gritty reboot where it's like oh it's arthur and he's black but also a villain no like he's still he's still arthur essentially
1: sure but like let's like it's not just that it's decoupling colonization from racism right it's that it's pretending to get people to confront issues with colonialism with colonialism without actually Having to deal with the issues of colonialism, yeah, and i would I would actually say that's why
0: you can't decouple colonialization from racism, like that's why we have this fantasy that you can do it when it, in fact you you can't like like there is like something different that happens when the population that you're oppressing like doesn't look like you you know you can immediately tell that someone is not of that population and in addition has totally different like ways of view like the the mixture of those two things together is very different from like just one or the other.
1: I agree and I want to add that I think there is sort of that is true but I think there's also a second thing that I'm trying to get at here which is that look if they were like visibly different because they were blue that would still be a problem because it wouldn't force the sort of white viewers of the show to confront the races that they actually have and the impact that actual colonialism has had on them yes that is 100 percent true avatar did not make anyone watching avatar go man these blue dudes were right maybe we mistreat native americans in our society and it's even worse when instead of or i think i feel like it's even worse when instead of blue dudes you have um people who are irish just because at this point um That is so integrated in our society. I guess I grew up in an area that was very heavily Irish when I was a kid. And like um, people in modern day America who are obsessed with Ireland, um, a lot of them are very nice people. And a lot of them are people who are very obsessed with being white. Yeah, like there's definitely like the Irish, I think, are kind of a textbook case. And
0: I would actually say right wing Israelis are another example of this. Of people who who have historically been like super oppressed in a colonial way, but then because of their skin and European features, have been able to assimilate into whiteness and then use it against other people. So, like in the in the case of the Irish, like you know famously there were these signs, "No Irish, No Blacks" in the 1800s. Yeah. But then the Irish were like, "Well, actually, we're white," and then use that to like continue to exclude black people.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, and they all became cops. And when you and when you make a show that says you know oppression against these Irish Fay people is just like oppression against you know the Latin Latino people in our society, like no one is no one is buying that. It almost makes it worse because it makes it easier for people watching it to say, "Oh no 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 no." You see, the people, the upstanding Irish fey, are not you know they're not eating taco. There's no taco truck on every corner in the Irish Fay oppressing land. This is fine. And I hate it as an immigrant. I hate it so much; it drives me insane. Yeah, because like there's
0: this real thing that happens that like people don't want to grapple with, and when they show things like this, which is that people fixate on the aesthetic. Exactly. The thing, and, and this is also why it's so important that you're when you're that your colonial that that like the worst oppression happened to people who were not white and who couldn't pass for white in any way. Yeah. Uh, because like. There's this thing where people fixate on like the look of the thing and all these other things that don't matter, like the kind of food that they eat and things like that. And they make that into like this huge thing.
1: And it perpetuates the sort of model, model victim stereotype too. It's like, well, the poor are not as cute as Oliver Twist in this, in this one musical that I saw. So fuck them. Yeah. The immigrants are not as, as cute and white as these, as these Irish fae. So fuck them
0: was like this white savior complex right of like oh i'm gonna be like the you know nice white the nice like oppressor class in this who like realizes the error of their ways and like you know allies with the you know super photogenic like oppressed people and then you find out that the, the oppressed people are not super photogenic and also probably pretty suspicious of like your white savior complex why would that be and you're like oh god never mind
1: so that's you know i mean that's sort of my complaint about a lot of arthur legends is um, I mean, even if you even if you sort of removed the the wide Britishness of it, um, the very the very legend itself is very sort of tied to these European traditions. Uh, it kinda it kinda has to be. And part of the reason why it's so popular is because colonialism has meant that those European traditions have become so understandable throughout the world that if you find somebody from, you know, Asia and you say, Oh yeah, there is this guy and he's a knight, there's a good chance that they like know what you mean. Absolutely. And I think
0: it's uh you know like I ended the history segment with Lamort d'arthur which came out in like the late fifteen hundreds, um and then it wasn't reprinted again until the early eighteen hundreds. So like there was this period of time that was like the Enlightenment and like colonizing the U.S. and stuff, where like people didn't like care much about it. Uh-huh. Um and then in the eighteen hundreds it came back, and I think it's really not coincidental that this is also when people started to disco- rediscover Vikings.
1: Yeah. Same, same deal,
0: yeah, yeah. the whole idea of like Vikings and Viking myths, and like we are all like Norsemen and like you know, Aryanness in the Hitler sense, not in the Hindu sense, although Hitler, of course, stole it from the Hindus, but that's a whole other thing. added to the list. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems very clear that like the reason why these things resurge is because, like that was when Europe was really starting to get rich off of like basically colonizing the whole world. And so then they were like, okay, now let's construct a mythos that says how we, like, northern, like, super white Europeans are, like, super exceptional. And so that's where you get, like, the, the Viking myths from. That's where you get, like, the Arthur mythos coming back from. Like, they kind of cherry-picked all of these things. And particularly, like, the whitest possible Europeans, like, are the best people.
1: Yep. I think that's, that's also a very good sort of historical point on it. And I mean, nothing, nothing against the actual Vikings, who are pretty interested, interesting, and nothing against this myth that I grew up with. It's just, I'm tired of it. And I was really excited that we briefly watched um, a show that was actually, that was not only filmed in New Zealand, but it was actually Maori called The Deadlands, which we didn't end up watching more of because um, it was not very, well, it, it didn't look like anybody was having fun on it. And I'm really hoping there's like a second season, because I think that it's going to get better as the character, as the actors sort of settle into it. Um, but it's a Maori show about sort of a Maori warrior that is called back from, um, from, the, from the underworld because he was a dick and he is thrown out for being a dick. And now he has to redeem himself by hanging out with a teenager and fighting zombies.
0: Yeah, like I would really love to see own voices, retellings of all of these things, but in a way that's also not like super serious. I wanna see people also able to have fun with it. And that's that's gonna be hard because I mean I understand why certainly like the first several like versions of it would be very serious. Like, you know, one of the things we were talking about with the Arthur stuff is that one of the reasons why people feel so free to fanfic it, besides the fact that it's in the public domain, is that it's not tied to any like religious or cultural identity like yes okay it's somewhat tied to like you know quote unquote white identity like we were talking about but not but if you like there's not much you can do with it that's gonna like offend people
1: no one's gonna throw a hissy fit because you miss has gunavir and if they do everyone's just gonna think they're an idiot because they are i mean here's the good news no one's making any television right now so uh we should get all sorts of exciting things on netflix soon right that is a good point like i do kind of wonder like, like right now we're still getting like the backlog of content that was like
0: filmed last year but like next year that's all gonna run out and we're gonna have to like
1: start looking for the revealed i mean maybe that's the day yeah when we just go to clubs all the time because we finally can
0: hopefully we'll be able to go out and it won't make a difference uh and it won't be like all that important but if we can't
1: that we're fucked just gonna eat yeah. each other <laughs> we will only watch tiktok but that would also be a reruns <laughs> because apparently that's banned now. It's, yeah, it's total bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: the world is bullshit now. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we know of some problematic, but uh, still kind of fun shows that you can watch. Yeah, that will make you feel slightly less sad about the whole world being bullshit.
1: Here's the cheerful thing. All these things are happening. We are getting all of these exciting uh, TV shows and all this exciting fun that we can watch. Elon, what can we expect in upcoming episodes? I don't know, Priya. I guess we can expect some conversation about how we have enjoyed Netflix's international offerings and watching things that are not just made by the BBC or an American television.
0: That sounds like a very promising episode.
1: Alright everyone, stay strong, stay safe Wear your mask Call your city's budget committee to defund the cops We will be back in a few weeks